This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. something that Einstein wrote, um, a human being is part of a whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us. Our task must be to free ourselves of this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So there's one way to see our world and our relationship to it. The other way to see it came out in sharp relief on November 8, 2016, when we had a sudden sharp division in American political life and elected um, uh, someone who assigns value to separation rather than to um, uh, this sense of communion assigns value to dislocating humans from our ecological nest. We elected a president who, in a, in a time of ecological crisis, who really doesn't have the word ecology in his lexicon, I, I would imagine. We were headed toward a low-carbon future, and now we are um, not sure what kind of a future we're going to be headed toward. Um, this is... This is uh, probably best maybe seen in this, that statement, that famous statement during the time when Donald Trump left the Paris Climate Agreement and said, I'm the mayor, I'm the president of Pittsburgh, not Paris. And of course, Pittsburgh and Paris immediately said, what? You know, we, we, uh, we want to be part of this climate agreement. So we have really in sharp relief two different ways of seeing who we are as human beings in the world. Um, and the point here is that American political life right now is painting for us this vision of, of this extreme separation, this not just a disconnection, but a hierarchical kind of dislocation where um, humans are displaced to this ecologically indefensible place. It's almost like an ontologically impossible place where life couldn't really exist in such extreme separation. And this belief in this separation between nature and culture, between spirit and matter, that is the belief that integral ecology arises to heal and addresses. Um, it's a wounded kind of inheritance that we have. Thomas Berry defined integral uh, ecologists, the integral ecologist, as a spiritual guide for our times. And so you'll see in this book that we have this rich, passionate, um, vast uh, grouping of spiritual wisdom and provocative philosophy and practical guidance. And what we're aiming to do tonight is unpack a few of these ideas for you and, and show you how essential this book and these signposts are for our future in a time right now when we are seeing an opposite kind of future in such stark relief. Um, so let's start. Uh, one of the things that became so clear to me when I started off reading this book is, is that uh, you, you named it absolutely accurately that there are integral ecologies, and I started to feel that there were an endless number of 
ways that integral ecology could express in the world. So I wanted to ask each of you just to give us a, some kind of an idea of what an integral ecology looks like, how it might express itself. Sean, do you want to start with that? <clears throat> sure. Kat, thank you for kicking us off that way. Um, well, uh, Pope Francis, um, in his recent encyclical, uh, has this one liner that expresses really the, the, the soul of integral ecology, and it's, uh, he didn't invent the line, but it's a good one. It's everything is connected, right? So that's one way of getting at integral ecology, is focusing on this, uh, this intuition and, and commitment to see the world as radically interconnected. Just give one other brief example of how integral ecology is starting to show up. Uh, Naomi Klein, uh, one of my great heroes in her book and documentary film, This Changes Everything, uh, subtitled Capitalism Versus the Climate, points out that uh, climate change, which is you know the, the premier sort of ecological problem that is getting the most attention, there are others of course, but uh, it, it's a, the one most in the radar screen, Many people think of it as an issue of carbon in the atmosphere, uh, and it is that, obviously. But she points out in her book and her documentary that if we're to really address uh, CO2 levels, uh, we need to address the political economy. I mean, we, we won't be able to uh, uh, reduce carbon emissions or extract carbon from the atmosphere unless we actually change the economy, uh, the political economy, and we can't do that unless we have a radical shift in values and worldviews and everything. So to change uh, the climate, we need to change everything. So uh, that's, that's, I think, another good concrete example of uh, a route into integral ecology. Sam, what about you? Uh, I'm you're kind of piggybacking off the idea that everything is interconnected, right? That's a great way to summarize integral ecology. Uh, there's a monk in the South Asian religious tradition of Jainism, and his name is Satish Kumar, and he describes something that I, dis I would consider an integral ecology, where it's an ecology that includes at least three things, soil, soul, and society. Right, so what that means is instead of thinking of ecology as just something about the soil in terms of environmental sciences, there's all these other levels of interconnectedness that are kind of woven together with the environment, with the soil and the land. And so you have society, right? Socioeconomic systems, political systems, infrastructure, and you also have soul, right? Like subjectivity, the dynamics of personhood or spirituality. And then integral ecology is one that weaves all three of those dimensions together. Adam, what do you think about it, an integral ecology, the way it expresses? Yeah, the, the first thing that comes to mind for me for an integral ecology is um, somewhat of a metaphysical position, which is just that mind and experience are a part of nature. Um, mind is continuous with the evolutionary process. It's continuous with the ecological process of the earth. Um, that's true of our minds, um, but it's also true of the minds of all of the other organisms that we share the planet with. And so, it's not just that we have thoughts about the universe, but that our thoughts are a part of what the universe is. And so if you think that our minds are a part of the universe and all of the other species of organisms, their minds are a part of the universe as well, then you get a pretty different picture of what an ecosystem is, which is something like a, an exchange of, of communication and expression and signs and interpretation. And so from the integral ecological perspective, you get, you get the, the sense of the interiority of the ecosystem in addition to the exteriority.
And so that becomes really important when we think of planetary issues, like the, the Anthropocene is a key word you may have heard recently, which is basically this idea that our thoughts, our feelings, our behaviors, our actions, um, they're not just a part of nature now, but they're in some sense an important part of guiding the direction of other species in our own lives. So the final point I would say about an integral ecology is that it has to be uh, multidisciplinary. It has to draw from natural and social and human sciences, but it also has to draw from existential knowledge, uh, spiritual traditions, religious traditions, and art. Since, since this is about who we are or who we want to be maybe, we need to draw on all of those resources when it comes to an integral ecology. So you can hear that there's a lot of reframing uh, that goes on in integral ecologies, reframing our domains of knowledge of what reality is. And it's almost like there are these themes that run through integral ecologies and that run through the book. And we picked out three of them to talk about tonight. I'm going to just let you know, these are almost like signposts. When you see these things happening, there's maybe an integral ecology somewhere in the vicinity. Um, one of them is participation. Another one is complexity. And a third one is paradigm shift. But let's take up paradigm shift first. Um, Sean, can you set the stage by just describing one of the fundamental paradigm shifts that integral ecology mediates, and that is the shift from, um, or the collapse, I guess you could say, of mechanistic science and a shift from that um, uh, more, more ordered, uh, stilted view. Well... You know, the, the dominant paradigm, or we could say worldview, um, they're more or less synonymous terms, um, that uh, the, the West and the modern period in general uh, has guided itself by and has used to structure its world is uh, a paradigm or a view that sees the human as uh, separate from the rest of the, the natural environment, superior to it. Uh, which um, tacitly, if not explicitly, sees the West uh, as being superior to the East and the South, uh, which sees the mind as being somehow um, separate from the body, and so on. So the, the root principle that organizes that worldview is a principle of disjunction or of separation, of dissociation fragmentation. And um, that's been a useful principle in many ways because it's allowed for a very exact, precise, and powerful science and technology to evolve. You need to be able to differentiate, to separate, to isolate uh, if you want to control something. So the, the, the modern um, techno-industrial paradigm based on the principle of reduction, fragmentation, simplification, and so on, has been very successful. But as we know, it's also brought the uh, biosphere to the point of collapse. And uh, you know, it's precipitating a mass extinction of species. It's um, also propping up uh, a situation of planetary apartheid where you know, the 1% uh, and, or the 10% against the 99 or the uh, 90% of not only other human beings, but the rest of the Earth community uh, are being systemically, systematically oppressed um, so that's what the dominant paradigm has achieved. And um, you know, if we are to survive, let alone flourish, we obviously need to shift uh, from uh, a root assumption of separation and fragmentation to one of, of interconnectedness, uh, interdependence, mutuality, you know, participation, and so on. 
Um, and that's happening. I mean, people are, are doing it in various, uh, all over the world. Um, it's been happening for some time. There's always been a countercultural stream uh, resisting that dominant paradigm. But now, in our time, is when that alternative needs to, to rise and uh, be effective if, we're, if the whole ship isn't going to uh, sink. Well, I'm thinking fundamentally it's also about the embeddedness of the human within the biosphere, within uh, the, various, the various spheres of life on Earth, and that, that sense of embeddedness that we come yeah, out of it's, that. Uh, and, well, it's many things. It's definitely that. It's seeing the human as an integral part of a deeper, wider cosmological evolutionary process. Okay, So the, the human is the, the newest, the, the latest uh, expression of a you know, 14, almost 14 billion year evolutionary process, 4.6 billion years of evolution on this, on this planet. And although we're the latest, as Adam was saying, we've become the most consequential since uh, it's our actions and our state of mind which is going to determine the fate of the rest of the biosphere on, on this planet. So um, we are embedded within the cosmos, but you know, we are the cosmos, we are the planet. Uh, and it's time that we sort of live up to the responsibility of the, of the privileged position that we have created for ourselves or that we've found ourselves in uh, and, uh, and recognize both our embeddedness and the special role and responsibility that we have. So, you know, this is how I would look at it. But what about you two? Well, the, the thing I loved about you had a, Sam and Adam, you had a, um, a chapter on called Cosmopolitics. And one of my favorite things kind of toward the beginning of it was a sense of how, talking about how we might come into a new we. And this new we is no longer an exclusively human club, but integrates humans and non-humans into an unruly collective, always under construction, which I loved for the lack of um, stability in a way and the lack of, um, of, of being an endpoint to find some, you know, like coming to an end of the road and this is how it is. And I loved it for the, the sense of unruliness and the sense of under construction. So Sam, do you want to just talk about how does cosmopolitics make space for this kind of an unruly collective? Right, for a new we. Like, who are we? What do you mean when you say we? Uh, and that's a problem just within the human sphere, clearly, when people say we. But to imagine to say we, not just for humans, but for all beings, right? Human and non-human, living and non-living, that's an immense challenge. And part of what we're trying to say uh, is that that's a question that we need to live. And instead of just resolving it into one system of, well, here's how you want to compose a we, here's how you make a collective, like, well, don't answer the question. Try and live that question so that you can be open to a variety of ways of composing a collective. So in a way, part of what you're trying to compose when you're bringing together a we is different approaches to how to bring together a we. Because there's been a lot of people trying to do this. I mean, especially if you're thinking about it ecologically, the idea that we should have some kind of ecological collective where humans and non-humans work together in balance and harmony. There have been so many movements doing that. Like social ecology was doing that back in the 70s, saying if we can get past capitalism and consumerism, maybe humans and non-humans can enter into a harmonious balance. Deep ecology around the same time was making a similar point, saying if we can have a spiritual experience of realization, then we can come into this new balance of humans and non-humans, this greater sense of we. 
Uh, ecofeminism, likewise, around the same time, all in the 70s, you have ecofeminism saying we can respond to the challenges of sexuality and gender and their intersections with the natural environment, then we can find a new way to compose a new we. And so then what we're trying to say is, well, these are a lot of different agendas and approaches and perspectives. How can we bring those together? How can we have this as a larger political space within which uh, the composition of a cosmos becomes a question? So how can we invite all of these different approaches to the table and figure out what it means to have a world, what it means to have a cosmos? Uh, so that politics isn't just about uh, representational politics, it's not just electoral politics, right? It's a, a deeper sense of composition, where representation isn't just something that you have uh, people doing in Washington. Representation is this basic action of finding a way to be together, to speak for one another, speak for ourselves, to empower one another, to find power within ourselves. So that's the basic idea. Instead of thinking of politics as domination, that'd be the old paradigm, this is a shift toward thinking of politics more as power with, power within, right? Less power over. So it's a we that's mutually empowering, a mutually enhancing sense of we between humans and non-humans. And Adam, at the same time, you guys talk about it as a struggle, as an ongoing struggle and is not something that's necessarily, well, obviously, it's necessarily easy. And, and that also changes what we, think of it, what we think of it meaning to be human, um, not just from a perspective of we're no longer over, but also what does it mean to in, in incorporate non-human voices into a political arena? Do you want to talk a little bit about what the struggles are about incorporating those non-human voices into, that polit into a political arena? Yeah, I mean, the... First thing that comes to mind is that, um, as Sam was saying, we don't, we don't necessarily know who the we is yet. And so we spent a long time, at least in a kind of traditional scientific way, thinking of we as people outside of us. And then, you know, we learn more recently that even our own bodies are composed of all kinds of non-human creatures that are essential to our health and well-being and, and feeling good. And we didn't know about that we, you know. Um, so there's all kinds of new people, new new beings showing up all of the time. And we don't know, even in our sort of moral decision-making, even on our best days, we don't know if the actions we're taking over here to benefit us and this we are negatively impacting the we over here that we didn't know about yet. So there's no kind of final we. Now we have everybody. We have the final consensus. We have everybody's tallied, everybody's accounted for. This has to be ongoing. It's a, it's a process-oriented politics that has to be redone again and again. Um, so in that sense, it's a struggle. Um, but it's, it's, it's a worthwhile struggle of, of renegotiating who, who is we and who's included in that we. Well, and you've talked about layers, too, about the layers of thinking that go into that. So, um, so not just um, thinking about ecology, but ecologized thinking. And what is the difference about thinking about ecology and having an ecologized thinking when, you're, when, when we're trying to contemplate these various different we's, you know, it, there's, a, there's a collapse a little bit of that um, subject-object uh, distance. Yeah, certainly. I think the, one of the key... Uh, ecology is something that should impact how you think about yourself in your daily experience. It's, experience is, to some in some sense, ecological. Um, it's affected by all of the foods you eat and the ideas you carry and the practices you have and the spaces you operate in. Um, you know, or in some cases, the spaces you're forced to operate in can have a huge 
impact on um, your physical well-being, but your psychological well-being and your health. And um, so I really like this phrase that Mary Evelyn Tucker uses in the introduction. She says, we're biohistorical, which is kind of the same as cosmopolitics. There's this inherited evolutionary kind of line that we're coming, we're awakening inside of and we can't get out of. But then we have this kind of small space of freedom where our moral and existential intuitions can kind of look back on that and say, okay, what do we, now that we know, what do we really want to do here? And so again, that points to the struggle, but we're always inside the stream in that sense. You can't sort of step outside of it and look at the whole in that way. So let's talk a little bit about complexity. Um, integral ecologies honor this kind of complexity of reality. And so Sean writes about how our thinking has to have a suppleness to contemplate that complexity. Um, and Sean, you've referenced this a little bit earlier when you talked about how we need to think of ourselves as evolutionary beings, as planetary beings. These are two of your five principles of thought that formulate an integral ecology. Can you just talk about how those two kinds of principles change our thinking when we are thinking of ourselves as evolutionary beings and planetary beings? Well, um, if you start with the ev evolutionary for a second, uh, you can think of evolutionary at least in two, two distinct ways. The first is a more common way, and that's uh, often spoken of in terms of deep time. Uh, you know, we, we've relatively recently in our species awakened to the fact that uh, our moment, our current history, is uh, the, the, the last phase of an un almost unimaginably long process uh, that has worked to make possible our present. And it's, you know, if you take the whole history, 14 billion years of, of uh, cosmic history, and if you imagined it as a 12-month calendar on your wall, you know, uh, all of the human project, actually the, the rise of our species pretty much would be the last minute of the last day of December of that year. Right? So it's unimaginably short, our current moment. So on the one hand, we have the sense of deep time, which is characterized by a series of unpredictable emergences. So first of all, you have matter that comes out of a void, right? Uh, and soon after that, galaxies start to form. Fairly soon after that, you have suns and planets condensing. And then life, right? Uh, now life is almost like four billion years ago, so 4,000 million years ago. Uh, and then, I won't go through the whole story, but you know, what's amazing is that we do now have a coherent, agreed upon story of the evolution of our cosmos, starting from the primal flaring forth of the Big Bang, as they like to call it, uh, with the major thresholds leading to our moment. And what's amazing is that our moment is the moment where these thresholds are being raised to consciousness. Right? So it's only in our time that that story can be told, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, so that's the evolutionary part, and it's immediately linked to the, the idea of planetary. Um, because the, the other thing that characterizes our moment is that we are awakening to ourselves uh, as a planet. So regardless of our cultural heritage, of our economic status, of where we live, we all share a common origin and we all will share a common fate, and that's the fate of this planet. So this is the planetary. So an integral ecology 
to, to my mind, I think I speak for my, my colleagues here, um, would almost necessarily be an evolutionary ecology and it would be a planetary ecology uh, and, and other things as well. So this is how I would... I would and and somehow we in. have that paradox of having to hold in our, in our minds and in our bodies the, the knowledge of being the, that infinitesimal fractional moment of time and also this very influential large species that has global impact. So we have these extre two extremes that we have to hold somehow of, of who we are. That's right. And uh, I think it's, uh, this is one thing to me that would distinguish an integral ecology from some of the more typical um, scientific, even big history perspectives that stress deep time, for instance, uh, and infinite spaces. But usually they end with the sense of, wow, how insignificant we are. I mean, we're nothing. We're a cosmic speck of dust. The whole human project is just the last few seconds in this cosmic year. Well, that's true. But it's within these last few seconds, it's on this cosmic speck of dust, that the whole picture is, is becoming manifest. That, you know, so imagine if you, if you received a message from uh, uh, an angel in a, in, a, in a bottle, a message in a bottle. Imagine that it took 14 billion years to reach you and you, you were just opening it now. Would that message from an angel be any less significant for the fact that it took 14 billion years to reach you? No, obviously not, right? <laughs> so we're, we're now reading that message from, well, from an angel or from, from somewhere uh, and that is the great gift and, and challenge of our time is that we're waking up just as everything is teetering on the edge. And uh, the other thing about the complexity is that it's radically uncertain, right? We don't, the, the planetary system is so far from equilibrium and it's so complex that as bad as things seem, we really can't predict what the outcome will be, particularly if we succeed in uh, composing this new uh, unruly participatory we that my colleagues were talking about that uh, uh, could make the difference. And, and to, compose, to compose that, and also just reflecting on what you were just saying about, you know, receiving a message from an angel in a bottle, or um, the various layers of complexity that we're now dealing with, we also have to ask ourselves how we know what we know, and uh, and are there different ways of knowing what we know that we haven't explored yet, um, and and how can we be certain of those, and how do we define what they are? So. Um, Adam, you talk a little bit about this in the in the cosmopolitics chapter. Do you want to talk about just unpacking a little bit by what you mean by complexity at the level of epistemology of of knowing how do we know what we know? Uh, sure. I mean, I think before we even talked about something like epistemology, we could just talk about experience um, and what we know, you know, through our various spiritual, philosophical, and scientific traditions is that there isn't anything that's just called baseline perception or baseline experience, um, sort of raw stimulus hitting the body. Um, there's, there's only um, uh, interpretation. Perspective is shot through at, at a physical level um, with uh, what we know, uh, what we expect, um, what our habits and practices have kind of let us see, um, what our various other tools and modalities have kind of let us get access towards. Um, so really even just at the level of experience, we're, there's, there's a variety of sort of species of subjectivity, we could say. 
um, that are that are very ecological and very tied into our actions and our situations and our cultures and our material conditions and again any number of other things that we don't know about right now. Um, so when we think about epistemology, that's kind of in the background. That's kind of operative. Um, so there's a tight link there between how we choose to know something and what shows up for us in experience. So I think that's, that's kind of the, the complement to the, the political thrust is that knowledge has to be a kind of process-oriented practice too. Uh, we keep discovering more, we keep learning more, and we keep, have to, we keep having to shift our own constitution in, in response to what we find. Almost our own capacities for taking in knowledge is what you're saying. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, Sam, you want to try uh, talking about the level of reality, the complexity at the level of reality, and, and how, integrally, how cosmopolitics addresses that? Yeah. You know, and something about epistemology, too. I mean, especially because when you're talking about complexity, right, what does complexity mean? But weaving together, folding together, right? So part of what we're folding together is epistemology and ontology, as well as uh, ethics and political issues like justice. Uh, that's what one of our authors, Elizabeth Allison, calls the relational spiral. That epistemology flows into ontology, that shapes our politics, that shapes our ethics, and then all that shapes our epistemology and shapes, and it keeps spiraling out right, in different forms. Uh, and so one of the points that's important to mention is that when we're talking about multiple ways of knowing, uh, that traditionally when you think about environmental science, you're talking about Western forms of science, and what we're trying to do now is include things like traditional ecological knowledge, right? TEK, it's often just abbreviated. And there's a lot of research into it. And it's basically the ecological knowledge embedded in indigenous traditions, uh, what Gregory Cajete calls native science. And he's like, yeah, I said science. And people are like, well, native <laughs> science, that's not science. He's like, well, no, but that's exactly the point. That's science. And they have uh, reliable scientific knowledge. They have their own means of producing knowledge. And it's different than the scientific method you know, people use if you're studying biology at a university somewhere, right? They're different, but each one has their own modes of access to uh, reality. And uh, so that's a big part of including multiple ways of knowing, is trying to include some of the oldest ways of knowing that happen to have supported communities sustainably on their land base for hundreds or thousands of years. Right? These are such model examples of how to integrate humans with the natural world. Um, so, you know, another uh, person that's important to mention there, Thomas Berry, a uh, cultural historian and geologian, not a theologian, uh, he has a nice formula for this, for kind of how he includes multiple ways of knowing, or his sense of a fourfold wisdom. He's like, if you're including multiple ways of knowing, you have to at least have these four things happening. And one is our uh, classical traditions of science and philosophy. Like, well, of course, I mean, we're talking about ecology, we're talking about the universe, you have to have those. Next, we need the world's religions. And then he's talking about kind of your axial age traditions, right, like Buddhism, Judaism, and then everything that kind of grew out of that, you know, you have Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, Sikhism, Jainism, you know, all that. But another category, the third, is indigenous traditions. Because that's not exactly the same as world religions because they're not literate, right? These are oral, place-based, small-scale traditions. Uh, and then the fourth, and you know, not by no means in order, is the wisdom of women. That there's certain kinds of epistemology or ways of knowing that are grounded in women's experience and women's bodies. 
and that that needs to be a really big part of how we understand ecology. Uh, otherwise, half the species just doesn't really have their voice being heard, right? Um, and then part of that, like why, why do we need to include so many perspectives and so many different ways of knowing is because reality itself is perspectival, that everything has perspectives, right? That a plant has a perspective on stuff. Animals have their own perspectives. Humans have perspectives. Fungi have perspectives, right? Uh, the fungi and bacteria having a war within your gut, like they have, they have perspectives. You have a whole civilization of bacteria that just hangs out like in the crook of your elbow. Right? And they all have their perspectives. They're all doing their own kind of epistemology. Uh, so in that sense, epistemology and ontology completely fold into one another. It's not like there's a world of uh, knowers over here and then the world of the known, right? the world of thought and then the world of being. Now, thinking and being are completely intertwined. Uh, so that's part of the complexity then of, at the level of reality, that reality isn't just the thing we think about. It's also the thinking. Uh, and that reality is inherently paradoxical through and through. That things are things, but things are also processes, right? Nouns and verbs, adjectives and adverbs. Everything kind of blends into one another and feeds back on one another. Uh, and that's what complexity is trying to map out. The different ways in which even at the very fundamental parts of the universe, uh, order and disorder are intertwined, or particle and wave. And as a lot of theologians would emphasize, we're also infinite and finite. And how do you deal with those tensions? Uh, so it's not a, a complexity where everything's just balanced and resolved, right? It's tension. That's part of the ongoing struggle of finding oneself and finding your we. It's a constant tension living in this complexity. So uh, complexity is a kind of way of living the uncertainty of life and uh, living the connectedness of life. Keeping in mind that connectedness isn't always a good thing. Think of the connectedness that people have to radiation. That's not necessarily the kind of intimacy you want. Many intimacies that we have are very unwanted intimacies, and yet we have to find a way to live with them. Uh, so that's definitely, when people say everything's interconnected, like, yeah, everything's interconnected, and a lot of that's harmful, and a lot of that's beneficial, and navigating that is an uh, ongoing challenge, because we keep finding new things or inventing new things. Like, how are we supposed to build a relationship with styrofoam? Like, and it's here, so we can't stop now. Like, no, it's here, you're gonna do something. Uh, so at the very level of reality, self and other are interpenetrating, for better and for worse, right? Which means friends and enemies. They can't just build walls between themselves. Uh, there's this kind of intimate intertwining. And that goes all the way to the smallest and to the largest parts of our existence. Uh, and so that's, the, that's why, one of the reasons why, instead of just choosing one approach to ecology, like deep ecology or social ecology or environmental justice, ecofeminism, environmental ethics, animal studies, right? It's like, no, we need some kind of larger sense of what this is about and, uh, and this kind of sense of complexity or cosmopolitics, a biohistorical reality. Uh, that's providing a, a larger frame within which people can navigate these kind of problems. So, Sam, have you built a relationship with styrofoam? <laughs> I think styrofoam <laughs> built a relationship with me. Uh-huh. <laughs> Or any, or any other kind of being or entity across that divide of, um, of dislike or I would, maybe I hesitate to say hatred, but, you know, dislike and uncomfortability. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I drank uh, bottled water recently, for instance. And that's an intimacy I don't want to have anything to do with. Right? If you're drinking Dasani, right, that's, that's Coca-Cola. That's who owns Dasani. And where are they getting their water? 
Uh, in some cases, I mean, you think of like Coca-Cola going into Plachimata, India, and stealing water from local people. I mean, it's just simply theft. They don't own that water. They pump the water. Maybe give some of the local citizens a few Cokes and respond, oh, don't worry, here's a Coke. And they're like, well, we kind of need water to live. And then that comes over here, and sometimes I'm in a situation, hanging out with somebody, they're like, here's a bottle of water. I'm like, well, I can either be rude to my friend and not accept it, or you can drink the water. What are you going to do? That situation's not going to end well. And you're either going to be uh, offending somebody, or you're going to be participating in something you don't want to participate in. Like, participation's not necessarily a good thing. It's also complicity. Complexity and moral complicity go hand in hand. Uh, so anytime I'm involved with anything plastic, I realize I'm part of a system that's uh, destabilizing the world's climate and facilitating the sixth mass extinction of species. And it's like, well, that's kind of extreme. I mean, it's just one bottle of water, but everything's connected. And so you're part of this larger system. So uh, I'm in, even thinking after uh, you know, March 11th, 2011, right, uh, with Fukushima and the way that that radiation, how does it affect our bodies? At some kind of micro scale, it's hard to say. Some of us more than others have uh, friends and family in those communities, and that's, that's a very unwanted intimacy. And then at some point you hear, oh, that just made landfall, and it's affecting the salmon in you know, the Pacific Northwest. I'm like, did I eat some of that salmon? Is that in me now? Should I buy a Geiger counter for my house? Uh, those, yeah, unwanted intimacies everywhere, which is, you know, the upshot, intimacy. The downside, a lot of that has so many unintended consequences and long-term unintended consequences uh, that it, be, it becomes a really difficult moral imperative to bear. And that's why the need for the larger context, right? Because there's, it's so, uh, you could say, depressing, but that doesn't really do justice to the existential severity of it, uh, that you need a bigger frame than anything we've previously had. And not like any of those other ones are bad. All these other environmental movements, environmental philosophies are so great, but the situation, uh, the depth and complexity of the situation warrants this larger context. At the risk of opening a can of worms, I'll, I'll say that we actually don't know that any fish are being poisoned with Fukushima radiation. There's a lot circulating on the web. There are gross pictures. Those aren't actually pictures of fish that have been poisoned by Fukushima radiation. There's a lot of fake news about, about that circulating on the web. So just beware of those kinds of, um, of, those kinds of websites. And even but, pl like playgrounds in Japan, uh, there was uncertainty about the amount of radiation there because of the way they would study it. And people would go and like, you know, you'd have government employees kind of uh, saying, okay, we took some tests, this playground seems safe. And then local citizens who did buy their own Geiger counters and things like this, they would go around, they're like, well, it depends if you know where radiation collects. And they would do, take samples from different parts of the playground and find high levels of radiation. So yeah, exactly, that kind of uncertainty about what's going on, conflicting reports, who's producing the knowledge and how, uh, these are exactly the kind of questions we need to deal with. So participation, as you brought up, is another one of the big themes. Let's just dive in, Sean. You want to take the big one about if we are participating with Earth and with the biosystems of Earth, and Earth is in some way participating with us, and the life, life forms of Earth are participating with us, then is Earth alive? Hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, I would rephrase it a little bit. I mean, I, okay, so, please do. Um, yeah, rather than, than think of humans participating with Earth, 
as though Earth were something other than human, uh, or Earth participating with us as though we were something other than Earth, uh, to me is, uh, is, is a residue of the, the old paradigm. So uh, then the question becomes, so, you know, who is, so who, is the, who is the actor of the participation, or who is the we? And some people say Gaia, uh, although that's you know, a bad word uh, among many scientific circles. I was at a conference of all major representatives of big history. You were there too. Um, you know, major world scientists and so on. I was the only person presenting that, that dared use the word Gaia, and, and I got roundly uh, criticized by some of the big historians who prefer just to talk about the Earth system. Um, and I love Earth system and Earth system science, but I also like Gaia. What I like about Gaia is that it, it has a, it, it reveals the, uh, the mystery of, of personhood, of subjectivity. So the question is, well, is the Earth alive? Is the Earth a subject? Well, if we are not other than Earth, and you know, we're alive, and we're subjects, then you know, in that sense, you know, clearly Earth is alive and, and has subjectivity. Uh, but whether Gaia or Earth has its own or her own center of consciousness in the way that we all experience having a center of consciousness that we, that we identify with when we say I, like I, Sean Kelly, am such and such. Um, that's hard to say. So I, I believe that, that uh, Gaia does have such a center. But, um, you know, speaking personally, uh, at the best of times, my consciousness is quite fragile, you know, intermittent. I'd like to believe that I'm a conscious being, but I, you know, to be honest, my, my consciousness, you know, wavers. I'm more or less conscious at any moment of the day. In fact, I'm unconscious and dreaming for a good part of every day at night. Uh, and then during the day, I'm distracted. And, you know, there may be moments of lucidity where I'm, where I'm conscious, where I could truly say I'm conscious. So I think the same is true for the planet as a whole, that that Gaia has been actually in, in, a, in a prolonged multi-billion year dream state. And before that, in, in, was in a state of deep sleep. But Gaia was dreaming. Thomas Berry, one of the, the uh, originators of the term original ecology, had a famous book called The Dream of the Earth. And he imagined that a new dream was, was being born. Well, I think Earth or Gaia has been dreaming for a lot of her history, but is now trying to wake up. And uh, we are the vehicle of that awakening. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's a fitful awakening. There are times where it seems more like a, like a nightmare or sleepwalking. Um, and there, there are moments where, you know, there's not much consciousness. It's, so it's unstable. But there are, you know, there are points, like flashes, all around the planet where that awakening is happening. Just like there are moments in each of our days where we are truly awake where you know, there's a certain position we can put ourselves in, or, or you know, we can look into our beloved's eyes for a moment and, and we're, we're awake or we're present. Well, that's happening uh, for the planet as a whole, increasingly, uh, as the, what Thierry de Chardin called the noosphere, or the, the, the gossamer, thin, subtle layer of thought or consciousness, which uh, has emerged, in a sense, uh, above and saturating the biosphere. 
the noosphere is is this realm where the the awakening is happening. But um, obviously, if the biosphere, if its complexity deteriorates, then there won't be a vehicle for that awakening. Um, so, um, to get back to your question, yes, I believe Gaia is, uh, in a sense, a person, a super person. That Gaia uh, is uh, conscious, in some ways, more or de more deeply than we are, but in other ways, um, not separate from us, because we are the vehicle for her awakening. Uh, Adam, you, you propose something that you call an ecology of practices to get at this, what, what you've all been talking about, what is the we? How do we understand we and how do we negotiate relations within this we? Do you want to describe a little bit about what you mean by ecology of practices? Yeah, sure. Um, the phrase is actually Isabel Stenger's. Um, she wrote uh, two volumes in, in English, six, six volumes in French, called Cosmopolitics, um, where Sam and I are drawing on her work in our chapter. Um, and the idea behind the ecology of practices is, again, this, this idea of how, how much effort it takes us to form ourselves. And the way I think about it in this context, as Sean was saying, we're, we're making explicit or bringing into consciousness so much of this ancient evolutionary process that was happening long before humans emerged on the earth, but we're now able to describe it in words and um, quantify it in certain ways and make certain predictions about how it functions. Um, so on the quantitative side, we're gaining all, we're making all of these implicit processes more explicit and we can kind of look at them and, and think about what they mean in a different way. Um, but none of that information tells us what we should do or even how to deal with that knowledge as, as we kind of become aware of it. Um, and so we, we talked a little bit about a, the, kind of the despair of thinking about ecological destruction, um, a lot of the issues that we're facing right now in terms of environmental crisis. Um, and it's very overwhelming and it's very unclear what to do at any given moment uh, or maybe even what to dedicate your whole life to. And so this idea of the ecology of practices for me is, is about having some kind of a, a, a training regime, a, a, a training protocol, and whether that comes from an existing spiritual tradition um, or existential philosophy or, or anything that kind of trains you up to be a more nuanced, more able, able capable person, more moral, more compassionate, um, all of those things that are typically associated with the humanities, with religion, with spirituality, with art, uh, with aesthetics, um, I think all of those have a huge role to play in how we live in this new world that we're making explicit for ourselves. And so the ecology of practices just suggests that you, there's, maybe it's just a small part of you, but there's some part of you that's, that's available for transformation that will change what you can do in the world. And the ecological component there just suggests that you're not finished either. You, you actually are kind of ungo undergoing this microevolution. Um, so you, your training, your, your personal kind of endeavors are, are a huge part of this, you know, much more complex planetary process. We're not all going to play some world historical role, but we can, we can train ourselves up in a way that um, meets these things better. 
you want to talk a little bit about any particular practices that you found really beneficial, especially for this particular ecological crisis in our time? I mean, I think it's all very sort of idiosyncratic. I think for me, philosophy has a lot to do with it, but art and music has a lot to do with it. Diet has a lot to do with it. Um, nurturing relationships. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about interconnection, um, and it's just it's just amazing how many people will kind of do a self-inventory and think, you know, I have I have money, I have a house, I have a car, yet you know I have. Speak for yourself. I have. <laughs> I, I personally don't. But. You can imagine of such a person. Um, they don't live in the Bay Area, though. They don't. And yet riddled with anxiety. And there's no, you know, so, uh, uh, and then, then you find that they, you know, they don't have any friends, they don't have a community. And so just practices of having friends, practices like calling people on the phone. Uh, how are you doing? How's it going? Staying connected. Um, meditative practices. Um, I mean, all of these things have existed for so long. And they still serve basically the same function that they always had. Um, it's, it's just now we have this different context that we can apply them to. It's almost like you could call it an ecology of awakening, too. Ecology that supports the awakening. That's right. So, the, I mean, Stenger's idea would be that you're, you're not just kind of in your, in your body right now, but you're this kind of extended field of transforming activity. And so your habits are actually kind of re, reorganizing yourself physiologically. So there's some... And, and the... the the nice thing about the ecological metaphor is one, you get that kind of transformative feel, but it also places you in a landscape. And so you have, you, you have to be aware that, you know, the, the, even the material conditions of a city are, are feeding back into your subjectivity and shaping you in a certain way. Um, and you may only have a small ability to influence that. That might be your situation. Um, and so then, so then it's a kind of a question of how do I adapt or how do I m maybe escape or how do I change these conditions? So the ecological kind of puts you outside of yourself, and it also lets you think of yourself as something that can change. Mm -hmm. Sam. Yeah, I would. Um, one of the things that's interesting about Isabel Stangers that you know sometimes she's uh, more explicit about than others is that she is uh, follows the neo-pagan witch Starhawk, and she considers herself a practitioner of witchcraft. And uh, with the development of modern science, things like witchcraft and alchemy and astrology became uh, excluded from legitimate knowledge. And so one of the things she's doing in this uh, large series, this you know, multi-volumes called Cosmopolitics, is tracing out knowledge production. And one of the things, you can think of an ecology of practices pretty literally, like just so you can think of an ecology of a wolf, a wolf maybe lives on a mountain and the wolf eats the deer, the deer eat the trees, right? the trees eat sunlight, and you know the whole cycle. So practices happen in that kind of thing too. So modern science has its own mountain, but something happened where for modern science to thrive, it had to exclude other things from its ecosystem. And what do you do with the boundaries of your practices? Because we all have our practice, but what are you excluding? And it doesn't mean you shouldn't exclude, but it means you have to be aware of what you're excluding and think about how to exclude well. Because obviously what happened to astrology, alchemy, witchcraft, I mean, you know, the burning of witches, right? Starhawk always says we have to remember the smell of their burning in our nostrils, how severe that kind of exclusion really was. And so obviously, like, if you do yoga, you're not doing Tai Chi. You can do both, but then you have to, you have to think of that boundary, right? The boundary projects of having your ecology of practices. How does that relate to other practices? So figuring out how these things can interact 
how can yoga and Tai Chi and deep ecology, right, and uh, different systems of practice at the personal level, at the political level, how can those interact? Uh, it's a really tough problem. One of the things Stangers often describes it with is uh, like medicine, where any medicine, if you take enough of it, it'll kill you. And so that knowing that boundary is crucial, right? Uh, pharmacon, right, the, the source of pharmacology means both poison and remedy. And so every ecology of practices has this very deep ambiguity with its boundaries. And uh, that's one of the reasons that you need just an, an integral approach because we can't just think of our practices in isolation anymore. Right? We're living in an interconnected planetary era. We have to think about how our, our practices relate to other practices, which means modern science has some thinking to do. If they can say Earth system, but they're having trouble saying Gaia, they need to deal with that boundary, and they need to deal with it in a lot uh, th more thoughtful way, and not just exclude things as a matter of fact. Oh, well, of course that's illegitimate. Oh, witchcraft, that has nothing to teach us. Native not science has nothing to teach us. Herbalism, alchemy, astrology. You know, there's still a lot that can be learned from these things, and, and somehow we need to find a way to get these ecosystems to flourish together and have a, a kind of mutual flourishing of multiple ecologies of practices. I found that idea really exciting, the ecology of practices. And I noticed that as I was reading through your book, there are times when I had a kind of um, taut aliveness in me that, that basically the way I put into words was that there was something in that moment, in that paragraph that was, that was speaking directly to me directly at this time. And, and that's one thing I think your book really does is speak directly to this time. So I wanted to just close by offering you all an opportunity to say something about why you think this book is important in this time and what it might offer in this, this particular moment in uh, Earth and human history, in our planetary and evolutionary history. So, um, Sean, you want to start? Mm. Well, obviously we're biased, but, um, and in one sense, you know, who needs another book? Uh, but insofar as books, might make a difference insofar as people are attracted to books, then you know, ours is one of a series of books coming out that have come out and that continue to come out that are helping people uh, uh, cultivate a, a deeper sense of identity that is continuous with the deeper identity of this uh, awakening planet. This is, I think our book helps us, helps people do that, and particularly people who uh, are connected with the world of ideas and uh, uh, both um, the sciences and the humanities and, and would like to start healing the, the, the splits that have uh, plagued um, academic discourse and thinking over the, over the last century in particular. Our book is a way of starting to heal that and uh, set, it, uh, set thinking uh, um, in its living planetary context. Thank you. Adam. I'm assuming um, most of us are in the humanities, philosophy, arts, religions. Um, and I think there's, there's far too little real dialogue between that group of the university and the quantitative sciences. And when those dialogues do happen, um, they, in my opinion, they take the shape of a, of a battle, of one side trying to dominate the other. And there are simply too few resources 
um, where they can kind of come together and um, um, work together on, on complex problems such as the ones that we deal with in the book. And there's just no, as long as we kind of keep it in that academic debate about right and wrong or, or true and false, uh, we ignore the fact that in the real world, uh, people need people need science and they need spirituality and they need art and they need philosophy. They, you know, whether or not this is an explicit part of their lives, um, it's an implicit part of their lives. So I think I think we can, you know, generate a better dialogue, and the, the book is a small part of that. It offers a lot of tools for better dialogue. Sam, you want to wrap it up with what your thoughts? Yeah, what does this book provide except for like homework assignments? <laughs> stuff, stuff to do. Um, one of the big problems with environmentalism, you know, since like 1960s environmentalism, but even, you know, going back to like John Muir's preservation and things like that, like the whole 20th century, how like why aren't more people doing more to change things? And then you listen to environmentalists and you're like, oh, that's why. <laughs> A lot of that's just really depressing and you're bumming me out. And if you're not bumming me out, it's just because you're judging me and telling me, here's what you need to do. Well, you know you're wrong. You shouldn't do that. Well, you, of course you shouldn't eat beef. You're like, well, thanks for wagging the finger. That really didn't inspire me much. And one of the things people have noted before is that Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a nightmare. That wasn't, you know, you're not going to win a lot of attention with that. What he said was, I have a dream. And what integral ecologies do is provide a dream. They provide a vision, a positive story that provides a comprehensive context for humans to reinvent themselves, not just personally, but at a species level, to reinvent the human species and the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act. So it provides that kind of context, uh, not as a negative judgment that's telling you we have the right answer, here's what you have to do, and if you don't fit in line, then we're gonna wag our finger. But it tells you that you have this within yourself and within your own perspective, within your own ecology of practices, and that the more you activate that energy, you can live that dream. And so we hope that this would inspire people to engage in this process because it can encourage your own flourishing, your own thriving, and isn't just another nightmare about all the environmental problems we're facing. It's not just about the environment. It's not like humans are in an environmental crisis. We are the environmental crisis. So dealing with this is just, a, it's not just a matter of nature, right? It's a matter of culture. It's a matter of knowledge. And so at the end of the day, we hope that this just inspires people to participate in that dream. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.